the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast. We'll help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp. This is the safe haven for recovering conservative evangelicals, people questioning their religious tradition, or anyone curious about the history of Christianity. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Michael Harden. He's an author, speaker, peace advocate, and teacher of biblical scholarship and Christian history. Welcome to the Brew Pub, Michael. Thank you, Michael. It's great to have you with us, and uh, I wish we weren't virtual now and we were actually at a pub so I could share some uh, Pacific Northwest craft beer with you. Would you like that? I would probably have a bottle or two or ten. No, that's it. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, yeah, there's some good the good craft beer in this part of the neck of the woods, but we'll have to do that another time. Um, yes, sir. In a moment, Michael's going to share some fascinating insights about a um, uh, a former Stanford professor, Rene Girard, and about his mimic theory and how it relates to uh, some really interesting things like human nature, violence, the history of Christianity. And um, we'll get to that in a moment, but I want to share a little bit of a backstory. Uh, Michael and I met online and Facebook, and I love his books and his live teaching, and he was kind enough to endorse my last book, Craft Brew Jesus. And we quickly discovered that we had a lot in common. Um, aside from having the same first name, we were both married to women named Lori, uh-huh. both spelled with an O. Uh, we were both fans, big fans of the alternative rock band, Yes, back in yes. the day. Amen to that, yes. <laughs> and after our sex, drugs, rock and roll stage, we were both converted in the Jesus movement in the 70s. Yes, yes. And uh, we went into evangelical ministry in the 80s. Michael is the pastor of an evangelical covenant church and me as a missionary in Africa. And then in the 90s, we both crashed and burned. (laughs) Yes. And found our way out of the burning uh, evangelical building to a safe place of religious sanity, or maybe more accurately, non-religious spiritual sanity. So with that as a backdrop, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in Christian ministry and education, how you would describe yourself today? I'm primarily an autodidact, which means I'm self-taught. 
I have guesstimated I have read probably 10, 12,000 books in the 42 years I've been studying theology, biblical studies, and these kinds of things. I did go to an excellent uh, little Bible college uh, when I was, uh, oh, from the time I was about 19 to 22. And uh, then I went on to North Park Seminary and received a Master of Divinity in 1988. And I'm a PhD candidate in theory at Charles Sturt University in oh, Australia. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just my dissertation's written. I just uh, had run out of money for the last term, and so I was never able to submit it. But I'm still technically in program, so that as soon as I get the money, I'll be submitting the dissertation. And um, yeah, my background in Christian ministry. I was uh, my first pastorate was uh, one year in Minneapolis, and my second one was six years on Long Island. And in between that, I did hospital chaplaincy work for a number of years uh, while I was in seminary. So that's the extent of technical Christian ministry, you know paid professional Christian ministry, something I would never wish to return to. <laughs> yeah. I hear you on that. So um, one of the things we wanted to talk about today is um, Rene Girard. I, I, I kind of got interested in him um, through you and other people who kept talking about him. And uh, he's got uh, this mimic theory of his. Why don't, you, why don't you tell us what that's all about? And a little bit about René Girard himself. Okay. Uh, René was born in France in 1923, and he just passed away in 2015. And I met René in 1990, uh, about two and a half years after I had started reading his books. And then we met uh, almost every year, sometimes a couple times a year after that, uh, for a long, long time. I have a whole collection of signed books by Rene because every time I'd go see him, I'd bring one of his books, you know, and he'd sign it. But um, Rene uh, taught French language and literature uh, at Stanford. Before that, he was at Johns Hopkins. He was at Buffalo SUNY. He is uh, a member of the Académie Française in uh, Paris, uh, which is kind of like getting the Nobel Prize for intellectuals. Um, his work has uh, changed the way uh, human sciences are being done. He has been called the Darwin of the human sciences because of his discovery of the mimetic theory. And mimetic theory it, it simply means imitation theory. It's, it's grounded in the Greek term for imitation, which is mimesis or mimesis. You'll hear it called sometimes. That just simple. Rene's theory is pretty simple. Um, we imitate each other's desires non-consciously. And because we do so, we end up in rivalry and conflict. And rivalry and conflict uh, for humans ends in death often. And when a community is in a crisis and there's a lot of mimetic conflicts between people in the community, uh, that community will non-consciously uh, channel their uh, violence and uh, aggression onto a, a random uh, person in the group. And that that, that person becomes the group's victim who restores peace and harmony to the group. And this is the anthropological mechanism that drives uh, religion first and from religion culture. And the uh, substance of the last part of that theory has been validated by the discoveries in um, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, where we have an ancient religious site, now the oldest physical human site we have, uh, dating back to 9500 BCE. Uh, where there are no domiciles, that is a purely religious site. And the first uh, domiciles we have are in Katahoyuk, which only dates to about 7,500. So religion predates culture. Girard argued this before the discovery of Gobekli Tepe. And then if you go back to the beginning of the mechanism on Nemesis, 
you have all the science in and around mirror neurons and mirror neural networks in the brains and that humans are really just uh, Xerox machines. We copy each other all the time and we gain our identity by copying others. So there you have it. Mimetic theory 101 in a nutshell. Uh, it's all very fascinating, um, and I'm reminded how much smarter that you are than me uh, with all this information you've got on 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 Renee and and how many books did you say you read? Twelve thousand. <laughs> yeah, 12, I probably read twelve thousand. I mean, I know I have at least six thousand here at home. I'm looking at them right now. So, yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Well, that's I. I, um, I sometimes I just skim books. I don't read all of them, but. Uh, I, I want to get the gist of it. But what strikes me when, for, with what you said is, you know, okay, is this like theory just about ancient man? Isn't modern man, uh, you know, evolved or <laughs> grown up out of these kinds of behaviors? What, how, how does he uh, show mimic theory in modern society? Well, in modern society, ever since the Enlightenment, uh, the function, if you, recall, if you look at religion sociologically and you ask in terms particularly of a functionalist approach to religion, how does religion function in a culture? What's its role? Prior to the Enlightenment, the role of religion was to stabilize culture. And the way it does that is it uses a little violence to uh, inoculate against greater violence. And so whenever a society is in crisis, uh, as when cultures were religious and authority would step in, victims would be chosen, witches or Jews. Or you'd find somebody to persecute and blame for your woes, and you would kill them or drown them if they were Anabaptists or, you know, whatever you were going to do to get rid of them. And, uh, and then the community had peace again. Now, since the Enlightenment, the modern economy has taken the role of ancient religion, and it is the modern economy that has that high priestly function of uh, keeping victims in the mechanism so that the mimetic conflict doesn't get out of hand. However, as we'll see later, the gospel has broken into that mechanism, and so that mechanism is not as effective as it wants to be, and as a result, it's breaking down. And that's what we're experiencing in the world today is the collision of religion and revelation. Right. So um, I'm trying to get a handle on some of these things. Uh, what, give us some examples of uh, how, how um, you know, maybe uh, violence uh, or scapegoating or whatever happens in a modern uh, uh, environment. Sure. Let me, let me refer you there to the excellent book written by John Paul, formerly of uh, Luther Seminary in Philadelphia, Empire of Sacrifice. And what he did in that book was he, he went through and he demonstrated how American culture sacrifices youth. They sacrifice, of course, people of color, persons of color. They sacrifice the aged of the elderly. And so we dispense of our elderly. They're a problem to us because nobody wants to take care of them. So what do you do? You shuffle off to old people's homes and forget them. We kill our youth by sending them to war. Our brightest and best we send into conflict to die. And John shows this, interestingly enough, through uh, cinematography and the history of film with regard to youth, how they're uh, often uh, the scapegoats of culture. And in particular, he, he, the one chapter goes from reefer madness all the way up through, I believe, apocalypse now. Um, 
But at any rate, as a culture, uh, we have our scapegoats. The poor certainly function as um, a scapegoats. The homeless, it's often those that are defenseless, uh, those right. that don't have any defense, you know, and, right. and they, they just become kind of forgotten and, and they die. And it's just, you know, it's kind of like this approach that Scrooge hedged, let them die and de- decrease the surplus population. Right. So you also say that the gospel has had an impact. Um, do you mean like directly through uh, religion, uh, formal religion, or just an impact that's influenced society to think differently? Well, all of the above. I mean, you know, I have a very robust view of the Holy Spirit, but one of the influences on that robust view was René Girard in the last chapter of his book, The Scapegoat, where he argues that the Johannine, the Gospel of John, uh, the Johannine use of the term paraclete, uh, that is advocate for the victim, um, has worked its way into our culture and into our thinking so that uh, our judicial system has become more and more oriented toward the victim. Right. And we've certainly seen that as you move, you know, from the Middle Ages into the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century. But Nietzsche in the late 19th century saw that because this was happening, we were soon going to have everybody claiming victim status. <laughs> and that's okay. exactly what's happened in our mind. So that we can no longer discern true victims from false victims. And now, especially like the Jesse Smollett case and these kinds of things where people are faking it. Yeah, right. This is the problem of modern society now, uh, a la Nietzsche. You can claim to be a victim, and no one's going to believe you. Yeah. You know, this is the real problem of for, for, for victims now, and it's a real attempt by the mechanism, the scapegoating mechanism of religion and culture to kind of occlude things and, and keep, keep things uh, oh, uh, away from the revelation of the gospel. <laughs> which points us straight to God as the ultimate victim. Right. Yeah, well, it kind of reminds me, you know, the Me Too movement, so many women now, I mean, uh, they've been victims and no one believed it. And here we have, you know, it playing out in, you know, uh, real ways, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, (laughs) it's just amazing to me. But it it also, um, I'm an optimist at heart, so I, I always try to see if there's anything, if we're moving in the right direction. Do you think we're moving in the right direction, though, as a society? As a, as a society, we're moving both directions at once. Mm-hmm. That, that's the thing. The whole society is not moving one way. There are pieces of it moving forward, and there are pieces of it moving backward. The, the question is, are the pieces of it moving forward strong enough to keep the whole thing moving forward? That's yes. the big question. Right. Yep. That makes sense. So one of the things that I noticed about Rene Girard, he 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 did he he looked at uh, religious literature, including the Bible, and he saw traces of mimic or proof of his mimic theory. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What and um, you know uh, what did he find in the Bible, for example, and how has um, what's the impact of his theory on how we should view the Bible? Well. Uh, okay. The, I guess I, uh, I got you. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fine. Yeah, it is. It is. So, so let me do a quick chronology. Um, 
Gerard arrives in the States in 47. He ends up marrying uh, Martha McCullough. They start having a family. He's teaching at Bryn Mawr University in Philadelphia in the late 50s, early 60s. And he has published his first book, Deceit, Desire, in the novel. And his argument there is that the what he discovers reading uh, Stendhal and Proust, Dostoevsky, uh, Cervantes, what he discovers there is that the category or the concept of the individual is a construct of the Enlightenment. It's a false construct. There's no such thing as an individual. And what these characters in these uh, books are showing is that all relations are triangular. They are not just binary. They're all triangular. That we, the, the, we want what others want. And this is over and over. He sees this in the novels. And so he calls individualism the romantic lie. And that's where he's developing uh, mimetic theory uh, literarily from literature. It's, it's, part, it's literary theory at this point. And then in the, from 62, after that's published until 1972, he does a massive amount of research in anthropological studies, Durkheim, Marcel, and Mauss. All of the great anthropologists, Freud, uh, Levi-Strauss, uh, you name it, and including others like Lacan um, and Paul Lamont. And so he, said, he produces in 1972 this heavy, heavy, dense book called Violence in the Sacred. And this is the book that puts him on the map. It's, the, it's uh, what was recognized as the first atheistic theory of religion, whereas all other theories of religion presupposed transcendence as though it was a reality. Girard was able to demonstrate how humans created the category and then filled so it. You said atheistic view of religion. So he approached it yeah. like, uh, assuming there was no God, let's take a look at what these things are saying. Well, he's, what he's doing, he's not, he's not saying, let's, let's, he's not assuming there's a God, he's not assuming there is a God. He's asking, can we account for the origin of transcendence? How do we account for that category? Okay. And he traces it back to victimage, because if you think early on in the process of, of evolution, as humans are becoming uh, less primate and more hominid, in this process, and it's a long process, it could take hundreds of thousands of years, it could take a long time, and it's non-conscious, it's pre-linguistic. The community is engaging this mechanism from time to time precisely because it works, but it's not conscious, and at some point somebody is going to consciously remember the last time we had a problem like this, this is what we did. And so they do it consciously. And every time there's a problem after that, it's done consciously and you create ritual. And from ritual, you end up with religion. That's kind of in a nutshell. The human being cannot but be religious. We, the, you, you think about your own life. Is it not the case that when there's trouble, you look for someone to blame? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so <clears throat> when a community, when, when there's the, the motion of the finger pointing is strong enough, then a scapegoat can be created. Mr. Trump is currently setting himself up to become a perfect national scapegoat where both parties will disown him. Right now, the Republicans aren't doing that, but there's, there, you can see the breaks starting to happen. And it depends on how close we get to the 2019 primaries and where things are at. But it's the all-against-one mechanism. And this is what concerns me, is see, Trump is not America's problem. I mean, he's America's problem, but he's, he's not the problem of America. That's the, the problem is all of us as Americans. We are the problem. We don't recognize our own propensity to greed, to, to wanting, to, to upward mobility. We don't recognize any of this. Even the poorest among us don't. 
And so we're always justifying our, our fights with someone. We're, all, we're always in the right. And thus we end up with this extremely polarized situation we're in now. Right. Yeah. That, you know, so it's, when you look at this mimetically, when you analyze it mimetically, you can really make sense of what's happening here. Right. So he's kind of, Trump is kind of like the culmination of all, <laughs> of all our uh, uh, issues that we, we have. Yes. In, Mr. Like, Trump, Mr. Trump represents all of us if we had the balls, to be honest. Yeah, I, I see mean, what you're you know, <laughs> well, I think most I think most of us think, hey, we're more honest than that and, and so forth. But I see what you're driving at. There's a there's that human nature and um to uh, blame others, to you know, get ahead, to uh, whatever. Um and so what what uh you know, what are the things that hold people back from doing that? I mean, why is Donald Trump like jumping in the deep end and doing it all together while most of us really aren't like that? We're because religion will produce three pillars of culture. The first is ritual, that which is repeated. The second is prohibition. The community will need to have prohibitions in place to stop uh, mimetic rivalries from happening in the first place. And so the earliest taboos are related to food and uh, females. And we can even see this in primate culture. And so um, with these early taboos in and around uh, food and female, we now have the law. We have a jurisprudence. You see, even if it's an extraordinarily primitive form, that's what we have. And then finally, as the community becomes linguistic and it's discussing what it does, that is, we only got rid of them because they were the problem. They came in, we didn't have the problem until they came, but when they came, we had the problem, so we got rid of them. And almost always, when the community tells its story, the voice of the victim is hidden. And Girard traced this uh, in 1972, Violence in the Sacred Through Ancient Myth. And he demonstrated how humans talk, talking about the origins of their cultures resorted to erasing uh, traces of the scapegoat in myths, but they never did a good enough job, and those traces remain behind. And so we can see the scapegoat. For example, in Livy, you have the founding of the city of Rome, two twin brothers in mimetic rivalry, and the boundary is set. Remus, Remus dares to cross the boundary. They get in a battle. Romulus kills Remus, and then the city is named, of course, after Romulus, Rome. You find this over and over again in mythology. What you find in the Bible is the same exact thing. Cain and Abel have a fight. Cain kills Abel. And what's the first thing Cain does? He goes out and builds a city, it says. Just him and mom and dad and a couple of sisters. What's he got to build a city for? Well, it's a myth. <laughs> it's a myth. It's correlating the mimetic desire of the uh, Adam-Eve-Snake trilogy, you know, the the, the snake creates desire. Is it really good for this? The man copies the, the male, copies the female. There's your imitation. And it produces death and yeah. thus civilization. So the Bible does the same exact thing as all ancient mythology with this exception. In the Bible, you hear the voice of the victim when God says, your brother's blood cries out from the ground for vengeance. So now we have two voices, the voice of the victim of myth, that's the voice that's silenced, and then the voice of the victim in travail, the, the Genesis myth, the voice that's innocent but still retributive, still seeks justice, but is innocent. 
You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay, now that victim has a voice. When you get to the New Testament, <clears throat> the passion narrative stru is structured identical to myth. There's an all-against-one mechanism. There's false accusations. There's violence done to the victim. There's justification for that violence. The passion narrative is identical to myth and thus deconstructs myth because it demonstrates not only is Jesus innocent, but he's also non-retributive and thus is right. the voice of God. Right. So in in the Jesus narrative and the whole early Christian narrative, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Paul coming against the Christians, uh, you know, the, the trial against Jesus and then saying, yes, uh, let's let's hand him over to the Romans. Um, oh, even going back to, um, you know, the Nazareth, when he first came on the scene and, and starts to talk about uh, Isaiah's good news. Yes. And then he, and then he get, makes the heroes, he, 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 he tracks the heroes or he, he um, cites the heroes of, of the Gentile heroes in the old Testament, not the Jewish heroes. Or, or the the the, the well, he, started, well, yeah, he, he goes and helped the great the, prophets, the great to, right. Israel's two greatest prophets, Elijah and Elisha. He mentions them. Yes, and, and he says that they came and helped the, these Gentile people, not right. the Jews, and that incensed them, and they wanted to go throw them off the cliff. So, yes, I mean, they did. so I mean, aren't they? They're just aren't they just kind of like you in their religion? That's what they were kind of taught to do: be retributive, come well, against the enemy, be violent, sure, sure. And protect I mean, their religion. But that's the heart of all religion, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. It's the heart of monotheistic religion. Right. This, this vision of heaven and hell, and it and it comes from the influence of Zoroaster. Uh, on the Jewish Zoroastrianism, I should say, on the Jewish uh, uh, Southern Jewish leadership when they're in Babylon for seventy years, and th there's no Judaism prior to the exile. There's the twelve tribes uh, with all their local shrines to Hashem, but it's only after the exile that you can talk about a Judaism coming into the Holy Land. And there is the birth of Second Temple eschatology right there. You know, and, and I mean. First Enoch and its incredible dualism, you know, which plays itself out in the New Testament in the book of the Revelation. Right, right. So, I mean, there's, um, uh, I guess, one of the things that, um, for me, the, the biggest, one of the biggest paradigm shifts for me coming out of evangelicalism was to, to finally review the Bible differently. You know, to yes. start to view the Bible and, and, um, you know, rec recognize uh, the dissenting views and the views that are really ugly and violent and call them for what they are. And, and but uh, compare them to, like you said, the, the, res the restorative, the forgiving, the compassionate voice uh, in other narratives in the Bible and right. to, and to make, uh, and, and to, um, but not try to harmonize them into one God who becomes schizophrenic. <laughs> well, yes, that's true. But see, we also want to avoid a grievous error. And that would be the error of supersessionism. That would be the error of saying that God did not reveal God's self to the Jews in Tanakh. So if you start with the book of Genesis, where you have this victim that has a voice in travail, Abel, 
by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, you have Judah offering to give his life in place for Benjamin, and you have Joseph, the forgiving victim. Forgiving yes, right. Victim. Yes. So Torah already contains all the gospel. I mean, if you only had the book of Genesis, you know, and you were willing to spend a life living and figuring it out, it, maybe you could do it. I don't know. Maybe it took Jesus to do that. But it's, there, it's shot through. And so you have these two things shot through Tanakh. You have both re- religion, that's God's on our side, God's told us to kill people, God wants us to, you know, do this and this and all. And then you have revelation, God caring for the people, God saying, look, these are the things that really create issues in terms of rivalry. So when you have things like um, thou shalt not covet uh, your neighbor's wife, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. In other words, don't engage in, in mimetic relationships where you're wanting what other people want. I mean, the last commandment, the last one, and Paul says this in Romans, was the one that broke him. You shall not covet. You shall not want what another person wants. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's brilliant. It cuts right to the heart of human psychology and could change us on the deepest level. But we don't pay attention to it. Yeah, and um, one of the things uh, in your your book, Mimic Theory and Biblical Interpretation, um, uh, excellent book. I mean, it's it's not it's so sh- it's short and it's very right on. So it's it's easy to get through and. I think it's a really uh, a good uh, uh, description of, of an alternate view to, to view, uh, a way to view the Bible. But you have a chapter in there about religion and revelation. And, yes. And what is the distinction you make between those two? And you're talking about religion and revelation in the Bible, right? That is, I am talking about it in the Bible, yes, in, in that book in particular. So you'll remember I, I talked about three voices. You have the victim of myth, yep. whose voice is silenced. Or you can have in mythology, the victim will speak, but they will admit they're guilty. So when the community's telling the story, da-da-da, the person came and there was no trouble. And then after they were there, there was trouble. So we asked them what they did and they confessed that they did something wrong. And so we, we, we sent them away, you know, or sometimes they'll, they'll tell them we killed them, you know? Yeah. Well, they killed Aiken that way. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's the text I was thinking of. You see, that's the that's one of the very, very few examples of pure myth in the Tanakh. It's it's absolutely pure myth. The Christ figure in that text is Achan. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's like uh, th- these guys just the guy even confessed, and they still didn't have mercy on him. They just killed him. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, is he didn't do it. And they wrote the story that way that he confessed, so it would look like their justice was divine. Well, that's the point. That's what I'm driving at. Is like how you know how do you you're viewing the Bible in a in a way where you're interpreting things in a way of of, of you don't have to take it straightforward that God actually did this and said this, and that's God's character. So oh no, I I, I think you find that already in Jesus and Paul both. Oh, I believe I mean, that too. Had that approach. Yeah. How do you uh, how do you uh, uh, show that to people who you know believe the whole Bible is infallible and well, there's, there's everything. Here's here's what I've discovered. One is most people's minds are like cement; they're all mixed up and permanently stuck. <laughs> but but actually, here's what I've discovered. Um, I I realize 
it took me a long time to figure this one out, but you can't convince people intellectually of anything. You have to wait until they have a crisis in their life. Well, and that's where and I was going to drive at. Yeah, you're right. Their, and their God doesn't work. Yeah. And that's when you can talk to them about the only God who understands suffering. So that's exactly right. Um, I mean, in, in my life, I didn't change until something very painful happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's it. It's either very, something very painful or something very emotional happens in your life. And, you're, and, and that's a great way to put it. Oh, this is not working. What's going on? Maybe I should rethink things. Eventually, yes. it starts to get through. Yes. Uh, so and most for evangelicals, the thing is they actually think they're losing their faith. They're not. They're losing their faith in an idol, but it's the Holy Spirit working in them to lead them to the living and true Jesus who, whom they can learn to trust. But they quit right in the middle and they end up in some kind of postmodern desert going, well, I really can't know anything. And so I'm just going to stay here because it feels like. Yeah, it, it is true. And it's unfortunate. And they, they've been, uh, bought a line that, you know, if you don't accept everything in the Bible or, uh, then you're, you know, a heretic, you're, they're afraid of being wrong about that. And, and oh, yeah. they, they want to stay in their community and don't want to be, you know, cause it's, it's a sacrifice to change. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. So anyways, um, uh, I, I, there's a, there's a chart on your book, uh, um, I don't know if Page 55. The Voices of Religion and Revelation from a Girardian this is point of what view. what we're discussing. Yeah, so that's what we're discussing. You've got those voices. You also talk about the Janus face God, and I've been quoting you on that. Not Janus Joplin, but, you know, the, the, this God who has two faces from what? Roman? Uh, from Roman uh, mythology, yes. Roman mythology. Tell us about that, and what, where do you find that in the Bible? Well, the, the two-faced God, the Janus-faced God, is a category that, that really does describe the Protestant God, a God who loves the sinner and hates the sin, a God that sends some to heaven and most to hell, a God mm-hmm. that, you know, you, you have this bifurcation, okay? And I, I hesitate to use uh, terms of... of uh, mental health with regard to, to, to God, because I, I don't want to insult my friends that have, that are dealing with these health conditions, you know, but, but I right. would say this, I would say this, what you have uh, with the Janus faced God is the God that the evangelicals have referred to as you must hold God's attributes in tension. And as I said, in the Jesus driven life, well, if God's tense, maybe God should see a psychiatrist. <laughs> The right. Janus God is the God of religion. Goes all the, go back to Zoroaster, where Zoroaster, in this pagan environment of polytheism, comes and creates monotheism, but it's not really monotheism he creates because he has two gods, the good God and the evil God, and there's the yin and the yang. There's your early uh, roots of Buddhism as well. You have two gods, and and those the Judaism will eventually turn the evil god into a fallen angel, Satan. Mm-hmm. But in Christianity, the two gods become merged as attributes in the Father, mm-hmm. or they're divided between the Father and the Son. You know, the Father plays the bad cop and brings the law, and the Son comes in the room and says, "Oh no, no, don't put him in jail. I'll pay for their debt." And, 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 you know, yes. Kind of, uh, <laughs> Well, you've just uh, 
you know, you just mentioned uh, something about uh, how do you interpret the cross and the atonement and, you know, uh, maybe you could say something about that. Uh, you know, the substitutionary atonement theory of evangelicalism, Jesus took the punishment we deserved because God has some kind of divine justice system he set up that he can't even, himself can't even uh, override. <laughs> yeah. Well, penal substitution, as you know, has a history uh, in and through Calvinism going back to John Calvin. The penal part does. The substitution part goes further back to Anselm of Canterbury in 1098 in his book, Cur Deus Homo. Right. So, you know, you're dealing with, first of all, a a doctrine that has a history. For the first thousand years of the church, nobody was thinking in those terms. They were thinking in terms of what we call Christus Victor or Christ the Victor theory. And you find this from, well, you can find uh, from Irenaeus essentially forward. Uh, and Irenaeus is around 180. And this, you know, G- on the cross, Jesus conquers the principalities and powers, sin, death, and the devil. And we find Christus Victor theory in Martin Luther. But it's Calvin who trained as a lawyer uh, at the University of Paris, uh, will bring in this juridical background to the atonement and thus turn everything forensic. And it's a courtroom, and we're the sinners, and God the Father is the judge, and, you know, Jesus is the guy that's going to take the hit for us. This theory is not in the New Testament, but it is exactly identical to the theory of all religion, including every kind of ancient pagan religion, including cannibalism. That's how religious theory works. The sad thing is the evangelicals actually think that's the gospel, and it's not. It's still just religion. Right. For, yeah, for well, the past, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I see that. And I, and the objection that I hear in, you know, in my head and from uh, the, the friends and family I still have that are evangelicals say, well, the Bible says Jesus died for our sins. That's, I agree. I right. agree. So what, I how do agree. you define that? Well, it's pretty simple. First of all, I'd say, find me a text where it says God poured his wrath out on Jesus. There's no such text. Yes, right. It's simply, it's simply a conclusion that's drawn from a misexegesis exactly. of a number of texts. So it's read, it's read into it, not derived from it. So if I was going to sit down with somebody, I would insist on exegeting Mark chapter 10, Romans chapter 3, verses 23, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. I would insist on looking at the epistle to the Hebrews where the writer in chapter 9, 22 says, there is no shedding, uh, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And at that point, the evangelical goes, see, 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 except right. that's not the whole quote. The quote begins with, according to the Torah. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And then the writer goes on just shortly later to have the pre-incarnate Christ sitting up there with the Father in heaven. And the text reads, um, when Christ came into the world, he said, and you have this quote of Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, burnt offering and sin offering you wanted nothing to do with, but a body you prepared for me. And do you know it's the only time in the New Testament, a New Testament writer is going to tell you exactly why he quoted that text. And he does that to show that the incarnation is non-sacrificial. This is not about sacrifice the way we normally understand it. And the writer to the Hebrews, you think this whole letter is about sacrifice? No, it's about something better than sacrifice. It's about the end of sacrifice. Right. 
Well, and that's one of the, I mean, what you're doing is um, you're recognizing the dissenting views, even in, in that, you know, in one book, uh, one writer, even just saying going back and forth, you know, but that's kind of the problem with people, the way people read the Bible, they just, they're just, they just can't do that unless it, it, it already reinforces what they want to hear. So it's just, right. it's, it's a very difficult way uh, to get through to people on how to read the Bible differently or how to view it differently. Well, that's why in my, my newest book, Knowing God, it's a question, Knowing God, and then the subtitles, Consumer Christianity and the Gospel of Jesus. I'm following uh, the, the line of uh, John H.S. Uh, Kent from his book uh, back in the oh, early 80s. He, he referred to the end of the line of Protestantism, and I declared Protestantism dead in this book. In fact, on Reformation Sunday in 2017, I preached at the United Church of Christ in Dallastown here in Pennsylvania, and my sermon was a funeral sermon for the Reformation, that Protestantism was dead. Oh, I said, around the world, 500 years later, everybody's celebrating the Reformation. I am here to bury it. Oh, that I, is a, that's I, classic. All right. Yeah. I would have loved to have been there. Um, yeah. They said yeah. they taped the sermon. I haven't seen a copy of it. I see. <laughs> That's so Chris Rodkey ever listens to this podcast, he owes me a tape of it. Okay. Um, the other, the other, um, let's say, uh, idea out there is, um, you know, the idea of es- eschatology, the end of the world, the end of the uh, Jesus is coming back. You know, I guess how does a mimic theory and all these recognizing the, the voice of religion and revelation, how does that impact? How do you view eschatology? That's great. First, let me, let me do this. Say this after me. My medic. Oh, my medic. My medic. Yeah. 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 Not mimetic. Well, you could you can say mimetic. You can say my medic, but either way it doesn't matter. But yeah. That, so here's with eschatology. It's the same thing with atonement. Once you recognize that when you juxtapose, divinity with violence you have religion that the divinity is not retributive the god of the gospel is grace when you have religion you always have uh, an economy of exchange i give to the gods so that the gods will give to me that's the whole function of sacrifice you you at christmas you exchange gifts it's not like one person gives gifts and everybody sits around no you exchange gifts you go visit someone's home you take something from the bakery or a bottle of wine we live in an economy of exchange. That's religion. Grace, revelation, is there is no economy of exchange. Love is just given because God is love. Grace is, is there because God is gracious, you see. There's no economy of exchange. Now, when you come to eschatology, it's all about economy of exchange in Second Temple Judaism. So you look at, for example, the writer of the Revelation when you Everybody dies, they get through the pearly gates, and the books are open. Yeah, how many good things you do, how many bad things you do. Oh, you did bad things more than you did good things. Open the trap door, drop that, one down to hell, you know. Um, that, that's, that's religion. If you take the economy of exchange out and you recognize that the end is precisely where God begins, what you have now is is an ability to look from the beginning as redemptive rather than the end. And I'll show you exactly what I mean. When you go to Genesis chapter 1, it's the first creation narrative. 
and you move through that thing in six days and, and you get through the human and on the seventh day there is a Sabbath. It is the only creation narrative out there in humanity that does not have blood in it. Mm. No sacrifice. Interesting. And it, it's, it's Genesis 1 is not about creation. It's about how it's all going to end. Because when you get to Genesis 2, you're still in day 6. The man and the woman are created. You never get to a Sabbath for God. Mm-hmm. You see? Genesis 1 is eschatological. It tells us everything's going to be fine. And then this gets affirmed by the Apostle Paul, who sees the death of Jesus as cosmic in character in the great hymn of Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. And again, in that, that hymn that I think he himself wrote in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. But we see the cosmic character of that in the hymn of John 1, 1 through 18 in the prologue as well. So it's, this is at the heart of New Testament discourse. This, this cosmic work that Jesus has done to unravel religion, to unravel the way we even think about God. And to challenge us to only view God through his eyes, and in particular through his eyes as he suffers and dies, as the forgiving victim, because we are the ones that put him up there. We're the ones that nail him to the Oh, great spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, I was. How do I know? Because I still do it to people today. And if Jesus were here, I'd do it to him. I did a, I did a, Eucharistic service once at a in a house church in England some years back and I'll be careful about my language here but they asked me to do it and so I took the bread and the cup and there was a big big bread knife there in front of me I mean a sharp one you know and I'm, I'm talking about Jesus as as the victim and I took that bread knife and I started slamming it into the bread and I started cursing out Jesus I'm calling him my mother after and a piece of shit I'm just cursing Jesus out as much as I can stab in that bread then I took the cup and I said this is not the blood of Abel to ask for, for for vengeance because I have now killed the son of the father this cup says I forgive you, Michael, and every time you hurt someone, I forgive you, and every time someone hurts you, I want you to forgive them, and I pass that bread around in that cup. There were people that could not do it. They just passed the bread on. They could not do yeah, it. Right. Could, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and yet I think yeah. it's precisely what it's all about. Well, yeah, it certainly makes you, it makes you think. I mean, it's not just a ritual all of a sudden. It's like, wait a minute, is this really what's happening? You know, so, I mean, you know, it, the the thing that, the the best best grace uh, declaration that, that I think Jesus said was was um, Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing and that wasn't just you know because they you know uh, offended him or something that's because they tortured him and murdered him I mean it's oh, just exactly. it's just absolutely incredible and and that there's just such grace and like Father forgive them really. He didn't say, Father, forgive them now that I've taken the punishment they deserve and you're not angry anymore. That's right. Gerard points out that that's the first literary allusion to the non-conscious. 2,000 years before Freud, Jesus is recognizing that action and intention are to be separated. And what makes this amazing in terms of an economy of exchange is when you say, I forgive you, and and then you can say to yourself, "I, I know you don't know what you're doing. Right, you're separating mission and intention, but our entire uh, judicial system is based on bringing the two together. The defendant did this on purpose; they planned it, they premeditated it. 
Right. The gospel is the opposite of the way our judicial system functions. It separates action and intention. And so we don't have to go looking to blame people when they hurt us. We can just simply recognize they really don't know what they're doing. Yeah, right. That makes yeah. sense. Um, so uh, let's see. One of the things uh, I found an article um, about Rene Girard, um, and the title of it is History is a Test, Mankind is Failing It. That's right. That's the post nine eleven, and maybe that was. Uh, well, actually, it was July August twenty two thousand nine, and I think yeah. it was it was uh, it was on the Stanford website maybe. But what struck me is that it, you know at the end he says, um, you know, he, he kind of goes through a lot of this uh, evidence of violence and everything, and and why we um, uh, we need to stop this retribution. Uh, narrative this tendency to always try to get back yes we uh, we must face our neighbors and i think this is a gerard quote and declare unconditional peace even if we are provoked to challenge we must give up violence once and for all yes that is his conclusion after you know studying this this um theory of behavior and how this is the only solution this isn't this the message of jesus too this is yes it is yes it is it's and, and it's you can articulate that even better mark unspot who is a, a student of renee's uh, really in his book vengeance in reverse said the problem of uh, the person that's justifying the last blow you know in other words I, you you hit me, but it was wrong, so I'm going to hit you back, and then we're even, and we're all settled. Right. Is that never agree on the origin of the fight, who started it. And because we can't agree on the origin of it, we can't agree on the ending of it. Mm-hmm. Because both of us are going to say, like little kids, he started it. No, he started it. No, he's because we're looking, you see, we want to always have the last punch. Right, and then we're, yeah. right. that makes sense. You always have to hit back because you're yeah. assuming – well, I, I, it's my, uh, it's my right to be the last one because he started it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what Renee's talking about when he says for unconditional peace, you know, yeah. Nine eleven shook him, uh, because, you know, up to that point, he was kind of an optimist that the gospel was working in the world. And, and then when he saw the global reaction to nine eleven and the, the world just immediately, uh, gathered around against uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, first against against uh, Afghanistan, and but, and, but then over into Iraq. Um, uh, Girard just, Rene at that point, I think, uh, turned pessimistic because in just a few years later, uh, six, seven years later, he would do a book that's a reflection on the Prussian military strategist uh, von Clausewitz uh, called Finishing. Clausewitz in French to, to finish Clausewitz to complete him. And it's a sad look at our post nine 11 world. It's very apocalyptic looking, you know, and when, when Rene died before the, uh, the uh, mental condition kicked in the last couple of years of his life. And I would, would visit him in a Stanford home. You know, we would talk about the future for our children and grandchildren. And I have to say, as, as he got older in those years between 2001 and 2014, uh, he was getting more and more pessimistic, and I can't imagine what he would think if Trump was in office right oh now. My gosh. I'm sure, you know. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, I mean, it's it, uh, to me in my own evolution, you know, kind of like, okay, I rethought the Bible. I rethought the atonement. I rethought what the gospel really is. I realized that, you know, there's a schizo- there's a, there's a two faced God in evangelicalism and, and, and people aren't even clued in to what, what really uh, the movement was, what, what the real message was. And, and that was the message of peace and nonviolence and restoration. Uh, I get excited when we have a criminal justice reform bill where, you know, people are actually starting to realize, yeah, it's not good to just punish people. We need to restore them. You know, at least they're thinking on the same lines. You know what's funny? Okay, here we are in the 21st century. You know, they had this exact same debate in the British Parliament in the 19th century. Yeah. yeah. Timothy Gorringe writes about it in his book, God's Just Vengeance. And they ended up debating atonement theory in Parliament in England with one group saying, (laughs) God punishes sinners, therefore prisons should be for punishment. And the other side going, no, uh, God is redemptive, therefore prison, prison should be redemptive. And it was amazing how the two come into court way back there, but God forbid that should happen here in the United States. I know, but I mean, yeah, I think uh, the, the, the movement, at least when it's bipartisan and they're, they're starting to see that, that's hopeful that, you know, people are starting to see yes. And they see clearly when we just punish people, you know, maybe it all goes back to money, but it costs more money. It causes more crime. It, you know, it makes things worse. And then they see, no, the no. restoration is actually better for us. What, what the problem we have now is a for-profit prison system because a for-profit, you've got way too much money invested in that system for there not to be prisoners. And that's the problem. That is one of that the problems. A big problem. It's There's no motivation to, to make it short and restorative. It's it's that's <laughs> right. I mean, think think of this money that's been sunk in, into for profit prisons. You don't think those people are going to be lobbying DC yes, for you're right. You know? You're right. Yep. So okay, we're going to move on. Um, okay. Uh, w- one of the questions uh, I have for you is, um, where do you think Christianity's going? Um, you know, there's, oh, there's, I don't know. I, I just follow Jesus. And I, I really I, don't know. I, I don't think you can predict where it's going. I really don't. I don't I know, think you can say. And, yeah, I know. I, what I see is there's some movements out there. Um, you know, there's, first there was the spiritual but not religious. And then there was the, I'm done with church and I'm just going to follow Jesus. And then there's the, you know, let's, I, I, Harvey Cox wrote oh, a yeah. about the future yeah. of faith. And he makes the argument that, um, you know, I think we're we're finally to the point where we can we can just have trust in in the grace of God be the foundation and not worry about these doctrines. Although it's interesting and it's sometimes important to talk about doctrines, especially how they relate to grace, but not to demonize and you know do hearsay hunting and everything, but just oh, yeah. focus on the on loving restorative society and grace uh, rather than you know pigeonholing everyone into a statement of faith, et cetera. Well, I'm, I'm a follower of Karl Barth for my entire adult life, as you know. And so I would concur with Harvey um, that uh, indeed uh, grace, the grace of God is foundational. However, I don't think you can dispense with doctrine. It's a, it's a false understanding of doctrine, first of all as though uh, doctrine is purely propositional and must be given intellectual assent. That's not how doctrine functions uh, in the church. And um, I believe it was uh, 
Dorothy Bass who pointed out that doctrine comes from the same word as doctor, and it's meant to be healing. And good doctrine does heal. Good doctrine is always healing because good doctrine is always thinking through the healing God in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. So it's Trinitarian, it's Orthodox. And I, I understand why people like Harvey were doing what they're doing in the 60s with the Death of God movement in the 70s. I mean, I was I came in right at the tail end of that, right at the beginning of political theology is kind of where I, when I became a Christian in 75, all that stuff was developing. But I, I am still convinced um, there is a beautiful thing in the history of the Christian tradition, and the, the church is, has been the mother or the womb of the gospel. And so even though I look at Christianity, the religion, I do separate, uh, I guess, the church as a category, um, from Christianity, and by church I don't mean uh, buildings and, and denominations. I'm referring to the tradition. I still find great value in the tradition. So, for example, I still read John Calvin, okay? Calvin is a theologian of grace probably more than anybody else since Augustine. You will not find a greater theologian of grace, but the Calvinists have turned Calvin on his head. Um, I mean, Calvin sometimes turns him on, his own self on his head, but Calvin's view of grace is extraordinary. Well, you know? yeah, I mean, Calvin is, uh, <laughs> let's see, what was it? Um, yeah, irresistible grace. I mean, yes. uh, the problem yeah. is is that he doesn't think that's true for everyone. <laughs> well, that's there again. You know, he's, he, does, he does have that. And can, but see, Calvin, by the way, Calvin didn't teach limited atonement. You know this. That's Calvinism. That comes out of the Beza Perkins tradition in England. Cal okay. Calvin never taught limited atonement. That's that's Calvinism. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, you that's what I'm saying. See, see Calvin, pe people need to read Calvin. And then they would go, oh, crap, we've really screwed this thing called evangelicalism all to pieces. Well, that might be true. I, I mean, I know that, that there's a, a case to be made that the reformers, I mean, the, the people who came after the reformers, you know, really screwed up what they originally said. But, um, you know, you yourself said that you did a, a, a funeral service for the Reformation. So, I mean, yes, they didn't, yes. Do, they didn't go far enough. They didn't, you know, they just, they, in so many ways, they just kept the, the, they just put the, uh, the, uh, put the Catholic corruption to bed, but then they r r raised up a Protestant corruption of some sort. I've always been amazed. Had, had, had somebody in the late 16th century taken Luther's theology of the cross, Calvin's understanding of the grace of God, and the Anabaptists' pacifist approach, you might have had a real Protestantism that had a chance. Yeah, right. So... We'll, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna uh, stop here pretty soon. Um, just one more comment about what you said about doctrine, though. I guess what I was driving at too, and I and I think I always think that there's it's very important to uh, understand uh, things like the atonement, for example, because if you don't have a good understanding of it, then you get the Janus face God, etc. Amen. But what what I where I what what I don't like is when people. Um, uh, say that, you know, if you don't believe a certain way, then you are not a real Christian, you are not a real um, follower, et cetera, et cetera. We, we draw these 
these these non-negotiables and and you know everyone has to fit into this box people are well, just the person, complex. The person, michael the person that says that you have to believe this and this in order to be saved has already declared themselves the arch heretic of the gospel because yeah. that is to base <laughs> salvation upon knowledge that's, that's what, right. narcissism so that's right and that's what I, kind of what I'm driving at there is that I'm not against doctrine either. The, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I'm against this knowledge of salvation thing. I guess that's what maybe one. Right. But put. they've put the cart before the horse. They've put yes. knowledge before trust. Right. But it doesn't mean that trust or faith, uh, pistis in Greek and fides in Latin, that doesn't mean that faith does not seek its own understanding, its own internal understanding. And that's what leads to the great phrase of Anselm of Canterbury, fides qua erens intellectum. We are, we are those who, whose trust of the, of the Father seeks understanding. Rather yeah. than we are those who understand until we can figure it out and then we believe. No, that's Gnosticism. It's also yeah. postmodernism. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you so much, um, for uh, being willing to come on. Uh, this has been a great discussion. Um, you, you're writing another book, right? What's, what's this next book going to be about? This next book is uh, two parts. The first part's the indictment on Protestant Christianity in America. And then the last four chapters are a uh, theological proposal. But you have to understand the book is written for 16-year-olds. It was my attempt to do kind of a Rob Bell-type book. Okay, uh, but there's a there's a, uh, a a theological intentional theological structure. So I begin rather than beginning the the doctrinal story from incarnation to crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Right, I start with crucifixion as that's our epistemology. That's where we we begin. Then we talk about resurrection and ascension, and then we have to talk about incarnation only after that. Because you can only talk about the incarnation of Jesus in terms of the Holy Spirit, which means you also have to talk about the church, the church as the embodiment of the incarnation of the living Trinity. And so I'm seeking to restore what I think is a proper relationship between those doctrines and how they're lived out in the world and language that's written for 16-year-olds. And it will be published by Whipfenstock, and it's called Knowing God, question mark, Consumer Knowing Christian, God. Okay. The gospel of Jesus. Yeah. So um, you also have uh, a couple other books, Jesus Driven Life, which is kind of like a, not your evangelical view of what uh, Christian life <laughs> should be, but an alternative. So let people know. And also the one we were talking about, my men, oh gosh, my medic theory and biblical interpretation. Did I get it right? <laughs> yes, you did. My medic theory and biblical interpretation. Yep. Yeah. Very, okay, so those are good books. Uh, you can find them on Amazon if you're interested. Yes. Also, you've got a website called Preaching Peace. It's got a lot of great resources. What's the URL for that? .org. .org, preachingpeace.org. Okay. Well, thanks, Michael. Um, I hope we can meet in person this summer. I'm coming back east, and uh, we'll definitely have to continue our conversation over some craft beer and uh, – Enjoy ourselves. You're always welcome to come and hang in the Dude of Theology's Man Cave. There we go. All right. That sounds good. Okay. Well, I'll let you go and take care. And if to, to our audience, uh, everyone, we'll see you next time on the Spiritual Brew Pub. Enjoy responsibly. 
the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.